0: This is K-A-O-S. You and I are listening to chaos in Australia. Let's go to the telephones now and take a request. Hello? Hi. Yes, Billy.
1: I hear radio waves in my head.
0: You hear radio waves in your head. Ah. Is there a request that you have tonight for chaos?
1: Radio waves.
2: The atmosphere is thin and cold The yellow sun is getting old The ozone overflows with radio waves Astrophys brings the news The raisin dishes give different views Are you confused? Radio waves Radio waves Radio waves, she sees radio waves. Radio waves. Radio waves. Radio waves. She sees radio waves. Radio waves. Radio waves.
0: Hello, my name's Brendan O'Brien and welcome to the Astrophys Podcast. The title of today's podcast is From Little Things, Big Things Grow. Each session we'll have co-presenters, we'll have a special guest in both the professional and amateur fields of radio astronomy, we'll have a news roundup, we'll have a history and theory session from Nadezhda and we'll talk to her very soon. To wrap up each show we'll hear about what's up in the observable sky and we'll be interrogating a couple of websites by Dr. Ian Musgrave. So, let's get stuck right into today's show. And let's see now if we can call in Nadezhda. Hello, Nadezhda. Hello, Brendan. How are you doing? Very well, thanks, Nadezhda. What are you going to tell us about today in our history and theory session?
1: Well, today I'm going to define astrophysics. I have a question from one of our listeners. Then I'm going to tell you about the world's largest radio telescope and it is not in China. And then I am going to introduce you to the next discoverer of radio and that is Guglielmo Marconi. Thank you, Nadezhda.
0: Now we're moving from Russia over to Japan for our first guest interview for today. Welcome to Tom Browder. Tom is going to be talking to us about the Bell 2 project. But before we do, Tom, can you tell us a little bit about your background and how you became involved in physics and Bell 2 in particular?
3: Okay, let's see. Starting from childhood, I was very interested in astronomy and stars and galaxies and the study of the whole universe cosmology when i went to college at the university of chicago in chicago illinois i found out to do astronomy you have to study physics first and mathematics and so i became a physics major and studied physics for many years and became a a bit sidetracked from astronomy and astrophysics in that direction and then I went to graduate school in physics at the University of California at Santa Barbara. And there, I really got sidetracked and I found myself involved in particle physics. And particle physics became my specialty and became my, uh, my career and I got a PhD studying particle physics in at, uh, Santa Barbara. And at that time, I was working on a particle physics experiment at Fermi Lab, which is in the suburbs of Chicago.
0: That's a very famous one.
3: Yeah. So then I worked as a postdoc. I started going in the direction of particle physics of heavy flavors of the heavy quarks. So that means the charm quark and the bottom quark and the top quark. And so I worked for a while, about a year and a half at SLAC, which is a laboratory uh, near Stanford University. And then I moved to Cornell University, which is in central New York state. And I worked there for about six years on the uh, Clio experiment uh, at uh, the uh, accelerator at Cornell University. And then in 1994, I moved to uh, the University of Hawaii, and I continued working on the experiment at Cornell for about four or five more years. But I gradually became more and more deeply involved in the Hawaii uh, activities, which were mostly experiments in Japan and China. And so I got deeper and deeper into the Bell experiment, which is located in Scuba, Japan. And starting in around 1998, I spent almost all my free time, my time that I was not teaching, working on this experiment in Japan. So that's my personal background.
0: Fantastic. Now, what's your current role? What does your Daily or weekly work involved, Tom?
3: I'm currently the spokesperson for this new experiment called Bell 2. And so I would say a great deal of my time is related to planning of the experiment and organizing people for the Bell 2 experiment.
0: Fantastic. Now, could you tell us about Super Keck B and Bell 2? These are facilities that you use to conduct experiments. Can you tell us a bit about a size, a shape, a location? the capabilities
3: of these facilities? Uh, Sure. So uh, there's a uh, national laboratory for accelerator physics in Tsukuba, Japan. That's in Ibaraki Prefecture. It's about 70 kilometers north of Tokyo. It used to be the countryside. Now it's kind of a bedroom town for Tokyo. But anyways... um, so this is where the laboratory is located. And there is a accelerator facility, which is three kilometers in circumference, uh, located in this uh, town of Scuba. Uh, That's That was originally the Keck-B accelerator ring. It's been uh, radically uh, improved and upgraded to Super Keck-B. This was a uh, maybe four or five-year project, costing $400 million approximately. And in addition, there was an old detector Bell a few elements of that were reused but most of it is completely new and we're building a a follow-on detector called Bell 2 so almost all the components except for the magnet and crystals are new
0: so Bell 2 is sort of like bolted onto the side of Super
3: SuperKEK B has electron and positron or anti-electron beams of Energies 4 billion electron volts colliding with uh, 7 billion electron volt uh, electrons, so 4 GV positrons and 7 GV electrons. They collide at a point on the northern side of super Keck B. At this collision point surrounding the collision point is the Bell II detector.
0: Fantastic. Now, you're doing a lot of research on quarks, and you're focusing on bottom quarks or beauty quarks. Can you tell our audience that may not know what a quark is, what is a quark,
3: Tom? It's one of the fundamental constituents of matter. So we probably are familiar with the atomic model of matter, and inside atoms are electrons, which we think are point-like, but the electrons are orbiting the nucleus, which consists of protons and neutrons, and in particular, inside the protons and neutrons, as we've learned from experiments and developments since the 1960s, smaller, more fundamental entities called quarks. These are charged particles, but unlike the electron or proton, they have a fraction of an electric charge, either one-third or two-thirds the charge of the electron or proton, and as As far as we know, these quarks are truly fundamental. They don't have any substructure.
0: Very good. Now, what's matter and antimatter? I believe that you're involved in research into the implications of your work with quark influences our understanding of matter and antimatter. What's happening there? What sort of projects are you working on in Bell 2 to deal with matter and antimatter?
3: Okay, so let's first quickly review matter and antimatter. So for every matter particle, there is an antimatter counterpart, particle which is has almost exactly the same properties except its electric charge is opposite so for the electron there's the anti electron or positron for the Proton, there is the antiproton, and so on. For all the elementary particles, there are antiparticle counterparts. Now, the great thing about matter and antimatter is when they meet, when they contact, when they come into contact, they annihilate and turn into photons. So basically, you take a matter particle and antimatter particle, bring them together, and they blow up. So, one of the most interesting things in particle physics, maybe the most interesting thing besides the Higgs... I would say is the asymmetry between matter particles and antimatter particles so the first evidence of this was discovered in 1964 by a team of physicists at Brookhaven National Laboratory on Long Island in New York they found that particles containing strange quarks and particles containing anti strange quarks had slightly different properties. The decay rates were slightly different. This difference between matter and antimatter particles is called CP violation. In 2001, Bell at KEK in Japan, and at uh, Babar at SLAC in California, the first evidence for matter-antimatter differences involving B quarks, beauty quarks, was discovered. And this is also a very fundamental discovery. As a result of this discovery, which confirmed theoretical ideas of two Japanese physicists, Kobayashi and Maskawa, in 2008, Kobayashi and Maskawa received the Nobel Prize in Physics. So, this is the foundation of the research on matter and antimatter asymmetries, or the CP violation. Now, CP violation is elementary particles, you might think is just a laboratory curiosity, but it actually has very profound and deep uh, connections to cosmology or the study of the early universe. In particular, at the beginning of the universe, we think the situation was entirely symmetric. That is, that there were equal numbers of matter and antimatter particles. And yet, in the present universe, and in our anywhere we look, as far as we can tell, the universe is entirely composed of matter. So if the initial state of the universe was matter-antimatter symmetric, that is, there were equal amounts of the two types, and the present universe is completely dominated by matter, then something must have changed. How could this have happened? And I remind you that if matter and antimatter come together, they annihilate. So in this a primitive state of the universe with equal amounts of matter and antimatter. The matter and antimatter particles were just annihilating into photons. The photons would then decay back into pairs of matter and antimatter, but you would never produce an excess of matter and antimatter. So how could this have happened?
0: Does that mean, Tom, that your research there, you're discovering what happened in the first trillionth of a second of the universe? Is that in effect what you're doing?
3: the fundamental research in particle physics has very important connections to this beginning of the the initial state of the universe, Uh, maybe not a trillionth of a second, a little bit later, but this is deeply connected. So the underlying idea that Andrei Sakharov came up with, he came up with this idea right after the discovery in 64 of the CP violation with kaons, with strange particles. His idea was that In the early universe, these small differences between matter particles and antimatter particles could be amplified and produce a net excess of matter so that the universe that we see 13.7 billion years later is matter-dominated.
0: That's wonderful research, and that explains why astrophysicists are interested in what you're doing there at Bell 2. What will success look like for you there at Bell 2?
3: Okay, so we have a little problem with this matter-antimatter excess, which is that the effects that we've seen with strange quarks and with beauty quarks are not sufficiently large to explain the size of the matter-antimatter asymmetry that we have today. Yes. The size of the asymmetry is about nine or ten orders of magnitude too large. Yep. So this means there must be some other physics that is not currently described by our standard model of particle physics. So our basic goal is to find these new types of physics. It could be new types of matter, antimatter asymmetries, but the search is much broader than that.
0: Fantastic.
3: So that's our goal in Two is to find this evidence of the new physics.
0: Yeah, that's beautiful. Now, you've obviously got... A huge team working there and physics has become a very collaborative science. We don't hang out hope for individual geniuses making breakthroughs anymore. Is your team working collaboratively with, say, the Large Hadron Collider? Are you working on similar sort of projects or is each facility following their own physics?
3: Our physics has deep connections to the Hadron Collider, but I would say that there's kind of a way of pigeonholing particle physics right now that might be instructive. So we divide things into three broad classes. There's the energy frontier, so the machines that operate at the highest uh, center of mass energy. So that's the LHC right now. Yep. Um, and maybe some future facility like the ILC2 then there is the intensity frontier where we try to have the highest intensity collisions and so Bell II and say the projects involving neutrinos fall into that class and then the third class is the cosmic frontier where we study particles coming uh, from outer space cosmic rays and associated particles so we're in the intensity frontier LHC is in the energy frontier. We're both looking for the same new physics, but we're doing it by different methodologies.
0: Fantastic, Tom. Now, what I'd like to do, Tom, is finish off with giving you the opportunity to tell us about your vision, your passion, any rants or raves you'd like to make about the world of physics in particular, and astrophysics, if you wish to go into that as well.
3: Okay. We've been stuck in a little bit of a rut. We're victims of our own success in particle physics. So there is this fundamental theory that describes particle physics called the standard model. It doesn't sound very attractive. (laughs) It's not, it's not a model, actually. Some people will uh, say we should change the name to the core theory. Anyways, the core theory seems to agree with all the data so far. And we've been looking for deviations from this core theory or standard model for something like 50 years in particle physics. So uh, some people are getting frustrated. You could say, actually, this is a, a triumph or a success. The last piece of the core theory was the discovery of the Higgs boson at the LHC a couple of years ago. Yes. Uh, That was very exciting for everybody in in particle physics. Now, we're really looking hard for how things are going to break down. And at the LHC, they're smashing things uh, together harder and harder. Now they're at 13 TeV in the center of mass, 13 trillion electron volts. They're hoping that something strange will happen. There are hints of something strange appearing recently, uh, which I hope are confirmed this summer. Now, we're taking a different approach. Instead of smashing things really hard, smashing two things as hard as we can together, we're looking for, we're producing large numbers of B decays and looking for subtle differences in the decay pattern. So let me tell you about another way of discovering new physics besides smashing things really hard together. Okay. That is using the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. So a B quark can turn into another quark through a so-called loop a process where virtual particles are produced that are much heavier than the B quark or, say, the strange quark. The idea that we have in particle physics, and this has worked before, the idea is we can, for a very short time, borrow a very large amount of energy, as long as we return it, A little bit later oh yeah so we can turn a b quark into a top quark and a w boson which are much heavier particles for an extremely short time as long as we those particles are then returned back so my my analogy for financial people is the following (laughs) Uh, according to the high energy heisenberg uncertainty principle you can borrow a trillion dollars from the bank for say a trillion of a second as long as you return it to the bank immediately now if you start making these transactions very, very frequently, these trillion-dollar loans for very short, trillion-dollar loans and repayments for very, very short periods. If you start doing this too frequently, then the bank is going to start to notice and they'll notice something peculiar about your account. And I think the these uh, virtual decays of B quarks to, say, strange quarks that involve loops are like that.
0: That's a beautiful analogy, Tom. Keep going.
3: Okay, so we're looking for these B quarks that have very peculiar bank accounts, and this might teach us, it might allow us to discover new heavy particles via these virtual decays. And of course, to do this, we have to produce huge numbers of B quarks. We have to have uh, fantastic detectors and instruments to observe their decays with great accuracy and precision. So that's our game plan for finding new physics. And as I said, something like this has worked in the past. This is a a possible road and maybe this will be the the road to new physics. It might not be that the the road that uh, is being followed at the LHC is really the path the right path to take this might be the way to go so that's my vision of the future
0: That sounds wonderful Tom really beautiful physics and from some of the members of our audience's point of view I think what they'll come away with is an understanding that by looking at the very small you can get a profound understanding of the very big so your particle physics is actually helping us understand the larger universe.
3: Yes it is there is a very profound and deep connection between between the particle physics, the study of the very smallest things, and cosmology, the study of the largest. That connection has existed for a long time and will continue to be very fruitful.
0: Fantastic, Tom. I think that's a great note for us to finish on. Thank you very much for speaking to us from Japan today, and we wish you all the very best with your research and hope you continue to have lots of fun there and wonderful collaborations and beautiful discoveries.
3: Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye.
0: Thanks, Tom. That sound you just heard is a sound coming from LIGO. The gravitational waves that were discovered over the last six months, there's been three gravitational waves detected and two of those have been verified. And now we're going to cross back to central Russia and speak with Professor Shcherbakov. Nadezhda, what have you got for us today?
1: Hello, Brendan. How are you doing?
0: Very well, thanks, Nadezhda. How
1: are you? I am very good, thank you. Today, I'm going to answer a listener question and define what astrophysics is. Then I'm going to talk about the world's largest radio telescope, which is in Russia. And then a new science section called On the Shoulders of Giants. And this week, I'm going to talk about Guglielmo Marconi. Thank you, Nadezhda.
0: We'll get back to you very soon. And now for the astrophysics news. The world's second largest radio telescope completed its installation on the 2nd of July this week, 2016. The 500-meter Aperture Spherical Telescope, or FAST, was completed in China, and from that telescope scientists can also carry out remote control and observations as far away as Beijing. And upon completion, the telescope will dwarf Puerto Rico's Arecibo Observatory, which is 300 meters in diameter, it will also be ten times more sensitive than the steerable 100 meter dish near Bonn in Germany. There are seven fast receivers and five of them were made in China. Another two were co-produced by Chinese, Australian and American institutions and it was worth about 1.2 billion yuan. The fast project began in 2011. Radio telescopes have made major astronomical discoveries such as pulsars, black holes, quasars and cosmic microwave background ground radiation. Among the 10 Nobel Prizes in Physics awarded for discoveries related to cosmology and space, six were attributed to radio telescopes. The world's second largest telescope is located at an extremely radio quiet site in China. It will enable astronomers to get a jump start on many scientific goals including surveying neutral hydrogen in distant galaxies and detecting very faint pulsars. Scientists also expect bright Breakthroughs on these highly magnetized rotating neutral stars, we call pulsars, because they emit a beam of electromagnetic radiation. So far, more than 2,000 pulsars have been detected, and these pulsars can also help us study gravitational waves. As China joins international efforts in gravitational wave detection, FAST will help improve the chances of detecting low-frequency gravitational waves. Now, the question is why is it. happening in China? Well it's a result of all the economic growth that's happening in the last decade and it's beginning to bear fruit for them. No more is this more evident than in its scientific funding. trend will continue. Chinese Premier Li Qi announced in March this year that the government intended to increase scientific spending by 9.1 percent as opposed to the Australian government which is doing its very best to demolish our scientific institutions. More news, on Tuesday this week, we conquered Jupiter, a quote from a mission controller at NASA. Juno, the spacecraft that's been travelling for almost six years, successfully slotted into orbit. Everything hinged on a 35-minute engine burn, but NASA's spacecraft arrived safely and manoeuvred into the gas giant's orbit. Last Tuesday afternoon, Juno braved one of the most extreme environments in the solar system to skim within 5,000 kilometres of of the giant planet's cloud tops firing its main engines to break by just enough to put it into the desired orbit. After 1.7 billion mile journey, we hit our burn within one second on a target that was just 10 kilometers large, said the mission project manager at NASA's JPL laboratory in Pasadena, California. Although the spacecraft's engines had been fired two times previously for mid-course corrections, this was the burn that had the scientists and engineers biting their nails. That's because it had to be conducted within Jupiter's intense radiation belts, which could interfere with Juno's electronics, causing its engines to misfire and the spacecraft to veer off course, but this did not happen. The burn started on time, lasted within one second of its target time. It was a song of perfection, they said. Research that this mission involving Juno will be focused on understanding the atmosphere of Jupiter. But the primary goal will be to see what Jupiter can teach us about the dawn of the early solar system. An hour later, the spacecraft passed its test by rotating from its deceleration orbit back into one in which its solar panels were again pointing towards the sun, critical for a solar powered craft. Next news item, Earth-sized telescope tracks the aftermath of a star being swallowed by a supermassive black hole. Radio astronomers have used a radio telescope network the size of Earth to zoom in on a unique phenomena in a distant galaxy, a jet activated by a star being consumed by a supermassive black hole. The record sharp observations reveal a compact and surprisingly slow-moving source of radio waves. One dramatic consequence is that some of the star's material, stripped from the star and collected around the black hole, can be ejected in extremely narrow beams of particles at speeds approaching the speed of light. This research was done by Chalmers University of Technology in Onsala in Sweden. An international team of radio astronomers led by Jun Yang of Onsala Space Observatory in Sweden studied the newborn jet in a source known as SWIFT J1644 164457 57. They used the European VLBI network, that's Very Long Baseline Interferometry. It's actually an earth-sized radio telescope array, it spans over several continents. When a star moves close to a supermassive black hole, it can be disrupted violently. About half of the gas in the star is drawn towards a black hole and forms a disc around it. During this process, large amounts of gravitational energy are converted into electromagnetic radiation, creating a bright source that is visible at many different wavelengths. And now we cross back to central Russia to speak with Professor Nadezhda Sherbakov. The microphone is yours, Nadezhda.
1: Thank you, Brendan. First, we answer a question from a listener who asks, what is astrophysics? I'll answer this in three parts and explain the difference between astronomy, astrophysics and cosmology. They are easily confused. Astronomy measures the positions, luminosities, motions and other characteristics of heavenly bodies like planets and stars and comets and meteors and how they behave. Astrophysics creates physical theories of small to medium-sized structures in the universe like solar systems and galaxies and how they relate to each other. Cosmology does the same thing for the largest structures and the universe as a whole. We study dark matter and dark energy and the expansion of the universe and... How the universe has evolved and what is its ultimate fate? These are the questions of cosmology. I am working with Brendan to present this podcast and we are going to focus on astrophysics. So thank you very much for your most relevant question. Next, I would like to say that I was a little bit disappointed this week with the world's media and the way science reporting was done about the new Chinese fast radio telescope. It's true, it is the world's largest single aperture radio telescope, but it is not the world's largest radio telescope. That happens to be right here in Russia. And it opened in 1977, it was 577 meters in diameter, which means it's 77 meters bigger than the FAST telescope in China, which which everyone wanted to talk so much about aliens which was another thing that upset me a little bit. I thought it was a bit ridiculous to think that astrophysicists spend our time looking for little green people. We do not do that. It's not a high priority at all. The Ratan 600, it is about 1,400 kilometers south of Moskva in the Caucasus. People in our audience might have heard of Sochi, which is a resort city on the coast of the Black Sea. Well, the ratan 600 is about 130 kilometers from Sochi. The ratan 600, it's a reflector-type radio telescope with all the advantages of a broad wavelength range. It uses Wide bandwidths, but it is very non traditional in design. In order to obtain high resolution at rather short wavelengths, the mirror of a radio telescope must have rather large linear dimensions, and the reflecting surface must be extremely accurate. Now, these requirements are clearly contradictory. In order to resolve this contradiction, the main mirror of the ratan 600 was built in the shape of a ring, with a diameter, as I mentioned, of 577 meters. If people would like to go and see this, you can see it in Google Earth or on Google Maps. You can see a satellite view. If you go to tinyearl.com forward slash ratan600, that's R A T A N 600, all lowercase. And you can zoom in and have a look at it and you'll see quite clearly that it is clearly bigger than the radio telescope that has just been opened in China. If people would like to understand the way the Ratan 600 dish works and to see its history, its specifications, its capabilities, what research is happening, you can go to tinyearl.com forward slash ratandish. That's R-A-T. D-A-N-D-I-S-H, Dish all lowercase. So go and have a look. It's very interesting to see the world's largest radio telescope here in Russia. Each week I am going to talk about the history and the theory and the personalities that have driven radio astronomy and astrophysics over the last 200 years. And this section is called On the Shoulders of Giants. Last week we saw how James Clerk Maxwell stood on the shoulders of de Coulomb, Ersted, Ampere and Mikhail Faraday to write his four beautiful equations and make predictions about electromagnetic radiation. Today I am going to introduce Guglielmo Marconi. But first we have to mention another giant, Heinrich Hertz. Born in 1857 and who sadly died at the young age of 36 in 1894, Hertz stood on Maxwell's shoulders and studied electromagnetic radiation. In the period 1886 to 1889, Hertz made ingenious electrical equipment. He made oscillators, reflectors, ring detectors to produce and detect electromagnetic radiation. Hertz had positioned his oscillator about 12 meters from a zinc-reflecting plate to produce standing waves. Each wave was about 4 meters long, and using the ring detector, he recorded how the waves' magnitude and component direction varied. Hertz measured Maxwell's waves and demonstrated, as predicted, that the velocity of these waves was equal to the velocity of light. The electric field intensity, polarity and reflection of the waves were also measured by Hertz. These experiments established that light and these waves were both a form of electromagnetic radiation which obeyed the Maxwell's equation. Now, back to Guelimo Marconi, born in Bologna in Italy in 1874. His mother was English of the famous whiskey-producing family, the Jameson. Even as a boy young, Marconi took a keen interest in physical and analytical science and studied the works of Maxwell and Hertz and several others who experimented with electromagnetic radiations. In 1895, he began laboratory experiments at his father's country estate where he succeeded in sending wireless signals over a distance of one and a half miles. Then, next year, in eighteen ninety six, Marconi took his apparatus to England, where he was granted the world's first patent for a system of wireless telegraphy. He demonstrated his system successfully in London, on Salisbury Plain, and then four kilometres across the Channel. Notice that the distances are increasing each time. In 1899, he established wireless communication between France and England across the English Channel, from Wimereux in northwest France to South Foreland Lighthouse, not far from the white cliffs of Dover in southeast England, a distance of 44 kilometers. In December 1901, Marconi wanted to settle an ongoing argument and was determined to prove that wireless waves were not affected by the curvature of the Earth. So, he used his system for transmitting the first wireless signals across the Atlantic Ocean, a distance of 2,100 miles. So, ship to shore and intercontinental radio communications became finally a reality. He was awarded the Nobel Prize for Physics in 1909. He continued to work and develop radio communication systems for another 30 years. Then in 1931, Marconi began research into the propagation characteristics of still shorter wavelengths and in 1932 built the world's first microwave radio telephone. Two years later, he demonstrated his microwave radio beacon for ship navigation, and in 1935 gave a practical demonstration of the principles of radar. So, by the mid-1930s, the world had a multitude of radio-wave transmitters and receivers. Thank you. Next week, we talk about Carl Jansky, then Grot Reber, and the very famous Australian radio astronomer, Ruby Payne Scott. Back to you, Brendan.
0: So, to finish off This week's podcast will look at what's up in the night sky this week and we'll be visiting a website by Dr. Ian Musgrave and you can Google him just by Googling the word astroblogger to find his excellent website on the night sky. July is the perfect time to dust off any old telescopes and have a good look at Saturn's rings. We just need the weather to clear a bit. Saturn is reasonably high in the evening sky and is readily visible below Scorpius. Saturn forms a triangle with Mars and the red star Antares. It's now high enough for good telescopic observation in the evening. In even small telescopes, its distinctive rings are quite obvious. If you don't have a telescope there's plenty to see for naked eye and with binoculars you can catch the tail end of the visit of the comet pan stars. It's been in our sky for a month and is beginning to fade but the comet is now high enough to see late in the evening rather than in the wee hours of the morning. The best time to spot it will be around midnight or the early morning from early to mid July when there will be only a little moonlight to wash it out. It'll look like a fuzzy green dot binoculars or a tiny ball of cotton wool if you have a telescope only if you're in the bush and have incredibly good eyesight will you see it with a naked eye comet pan stars rises about 4 pm local time and is clear of the horizon murk from about 8 pm it's currently about magnitude 7.2 and will be visible in dark skies with good binoculars the comet will be close to the tail of the scorpion for much of this week and detailed maps and guides are at the AstroBlogger website. There's lots of open clusters in the same area, so making out that fuzzy ball among all the others might be a little bit difficult, but I'm sure you'll work it out. The first quarter moon is on Tuesday, July 12th. Jupiter is visible in the early evening. Mars and Saturn are visible all night long. Good night. See you next week.
2: CC's Radio Wave's Radio waves, radio waves.